you're listening to Epitaph. In the 1940s, folklorist Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged a new type of urban legend rapidly spreading around the country. The title of their article in California Folklore Quarterly gave the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. In season one, Epitaph travels the roads of America to investigate the local variations of the Vanishing Hitchhiker legend to discover where these ghost stories intersect with local history and truth. This is episode six. The Waldheim Flapper. One of the most famous hitchhiking ghosts in the world is found in the city of Chicago. In the 1930s, the age of big band and swing dancing, when ballrooms were the place to be, a young woman and her boyfriend were dancing at the O. Henry Ballroom out on Archer Avenue. Sometime during the night, they got into an argument. Angry and maybe a little drunk, she decided that she would rather walk home than spend another minute in his company. But the O. Henry was several miles from where she lived. It had begun snowing while they were inside, and she quickly decided that the dress she had worn for dancing didn't offer her much warmth from the cold. So she stood at the side of the road and tried to hitch a ride. As the story goes, she was struck by a passing car, and when the driver realized what had happened, he left her there. Her body was discovered the next day. Her parents had her interred at Resurrection Cemetery, just down the road from the O. Henry, in her favorite dancing dress. And ever since, she's been seen there trying to catch a ride back to the ballrooms. Hang on. Nope. That's the story of Resurrection Mary, and we'll come back to that. But what many people familiar with the story of Chicago's most famous vanishing hitchhiker may not realize is that Mary is just one of several hitchhiking ghosts connected to the cemeteries in the Chicago area. For example, one story tells of the ghost of a dark-haired teenage girl who asks to be taken to the Evergreen Park neighborhood, and when they near Evergreen Cemetery, she vanishes. But she isn't always content to hitch rides. On occasion, she's been seen waiting at the bus stop near the cemetery. And on at least one occasion, she actually got on the bus, but, as you may expect, didn't pay the fare. The driver got up to confront her, but as he approached, she disappeared before his eyes. There's another young woman, known for her distinctive 1920s-era dress, reported to haunt the Forest Park neighborhood. She was said to frequently catch rides from the Melody Mill Ballroom on De Plains Avenue in North Riverside to the Waldheim Jewish Cemetery. And just as Resurrection Mary was named for the place where she was buried, that cemetery would also give this ghost her name, the Waldheim Flapper. The story of the Waldheim Flapper begins at the place she's said to have haunted, the Melody Mill Ballroom at 2401 De Plains Avenue. The Melody Mill first opened in North Riverside on the side of a picnic grove in mid-November of 1930 to very little fanfare. Local newspapers didn't advertise it, and in an age where so many ballrooms were up and running in Chicago, it's easy to imagine that a new one wouldn't be very newsworthy. But the Melody Mill was more than just your average ballroom. Along with its 15,000 square foot dance floor, the basement of the ballroom also featured a roller skating rink and a miniature golf course. Less than a month after it had opened, on December 8th, an arsonist poured 100 gallons of ethyl gasoline throughout the building and set it on fire. Despite the work of fire companies from Riverside, Berwyn, Forest Park, and Cicero, by the time the fire was out, a third of the roof and a third of the hardwood dance floor had been destroyed. The skating rink and miniature golf course in the basement had been ruined by water damage. 
In all, the building was said to have sustained more than $35,000 worth of damage, which is the equivalent to a little more than half a million dollars today. Despite pledging to begin repairs immediately, the owners, Chicago businessman Anton Bezshelba and Joseph Skakes, cut their losses and defaulted on payments for their destroyed property. Another businessman, Benjamin Lejkar Sr. and his wife Elsie, purchased the property from the bank and began repairing it. Almost 13 months after it had been destroyed, they reopened the mill with a party on New Year's Eve 1931. Throughout the 1930s, as many as 3,000 dancers a night, dressed in their best, came by car, by foot, and by streetcar to the Melody Mill. In the first year, the price of admission was a dime. Not a bad deal for a night of dancing with your sweetheart during the Depression, and many nights, ladies could get in for free. Before long, featuring bands like Kenny's Red Peppers Orchestra, the mill had grown in popularity to the point that they were charging admission at 75 cents for the ladies and a dollar for the gentlemen. Over the years, other famous bands would play the mill. Benny Goodman, Sammy Kay, Tommy Dorsey, Stan Kenton, Les Brown and his band of renown. The song you hear playing in the background of this segment, Moonlight on Melody Mill, was performed by Tiny Hills Orchestra, who'd become the semi-official dance band of the Melody Mill. Tiny Hills Orchestra was also regularly featured on WGN, which broadcast nightly from the mill, and it was there that the story of Melody Mill's vanishing hitchhiker may have gotten its start. In 1938, Tiny told the familiar story. Three young men had gone stag to Melody Mill and had wound up meeting a beautiful woman done up in white. Two of the boys even danced with her. At the end of the night, she asked to be taken home, and the boys were glad to do so. She asked to be dropped off at a nearby cemetery, though Tiny didn't give the cemetery's name. She ran into the cemetery, and, concerned, two of the boys followed after her. The next morning, police found the two boys wandering the cemetery. They described them as raving maniacs, telling an unbelievable story of what they'd seen. The third boy had died behind the wheel of the car, possibly of fright. According to the story, police found the girl's purse in the front seat of the car and went to the address that was inside it. The woman at the door told them that it looked like her daughter's purse, but that she had died three years before. She was buried at the cemetery where the boys were found. Obviously, this story has a number of elements that, were they true, would be the sort of things that you'd expect to read about in local newspapers. But the Daily Northwestern identified it, I think correctly, as a publicity stunt. As Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey had documented, there were already a number of vanishing hitchhiker stories in the Chicago area in the 1930s. But even so, perhaps in some part due to the popularity of the mill, this particular legend persisted. Some versions of it were, admittedly, almost word-for-word -word retellings of the standard vanishing hitchhiker legend. Dave Huckstra, for example, told the Chicago Sun-Times that 50 years earlier, in 1934, that a young man named Wally met a blonde woman in a white gown at the ballroom. At the end of the night, he offered her a ride and she asked to be dropped off near the Woodlawn Cemetery, which, for those interested in the geography, is immediately to the south of the Waldheim Cemetery. They're so close together, in fact, that they were advertised together in local newspapers. Wally had been promised a date a week later, though, and when he arrived at her home, was told that she had been dead for three years. Huckstra said that he had heard the story from Benjamin Lejkar Sr. Ben would have had to have heard it from someone else. That would make it, at best, a third-hand story. That, along with the similarity to the standard version of the legend, makes it easy to dismiss. But I'll dismiss this story for another reason. Huckstra's version doesn't describe the same girl that we find in the other sightings and encounters. The girl who came to be known in local ghost lore as the Waldheim Flapper 
She's reported to be a Jewish girl, with short, dark curls and a fringed flapper dress. Hookstra said that his ghost asked to go to the Woodlawn Cemetery, but despite their proximity, Woodlawn and Waldheim aren't the same place. The first reports of the Waldheim flapper are said to predate Chicago's other famous hitchhiker, Resurrection Mary. She is said to have been seen quite regularly during the early days of the mill, particularly in 1933 and 1934 during the Century of Progress exhibition. In the years prior to the Second World War, many young men claimed to have met her, danced with her, conversed with her, and then took her home. Her home, she said, was the caretaker's house at Jewish Waldheim Cemetery, which used to be on Harlem Avenue, just north of Cermak Road. She would get out of the car, run across the road, and round the side of the caretaker's house, and then into the tombstones beyond. On some occasions, her dates were said to have followed her just to watch her vanish into thin air in the darkness of the cemetery. In 1979, a patrol officer in North Riverside, a man named John O'Rourke, saw a beautiful young woman walking near the ballroom in the rain. I was just going on the midnight to eight shift. There was a slight drizzle and the Melody Mill was just letting out. A woman was walking down the street by herself, so I pulled up alongside of her and asked where she was going. She answered home, and as the rain was starting to get heavier, he offered her a ride. She guided him up Harlem, just north of Cermak Road. I asked her questions and she always changed the subject. She just talked about how she loved to dance and how much she enjoyed the Melody Mill. She asked to be let out between the Waldheim Cemetery and some apartment buildings across from what was then a Ford dealership. A truck backfired, and Officer O'Rourke looked away for a second, but when he looked back, she was gone. Concerned that she had disappeared too quickly, O'Rourke got out of his car to make sure that she was alright. I went up to the apartment entrances, but there were no wet footprints. I checked the buildings all around. She had disappeared, and to O'Rourke, there was simply no good explanation for where she could have gone. Of all the reports of sightings of this particular ghost, I give this account a little bit more credence because of the man who had reported it. You see, Officer John O'Rourke was a rookie when this story took place in 1979, but he'd go on to have a distinguished career in the North Riverside Police Department, serving honorably for 31 years before retiring as a sergeant. The Illinois Fraternal Order of Police's Labor Council gives out an award each year to the member whose actions exemplify dedication, courage, and self-sacrifice, and that award is named for John O'Rourke, its first recipient. I could certainly be wrong, but to me, that doesn't sound like the resume of someone who was prone to attach his name to made-up ghost stories. Dale Kazmarek, an author, historian, and president of the Ghost Research Society, shared a report on his website that a local cab driver had picked up the girl near the Melody Mill, followed her directions to her home, but when they arrived at the cemetery, he didn't believe her when she said that she lived there. So he kept driving, intending to take her back to the ballroom. But by the time he got there, she was gone. Other cab drivers are said to have memorized the description that he gave of her so that if they were to ever see her walking home from the mill, they could know to avoid her. But she's also said to have made appearances in daylight. In 1973, on a warm spring day, a Jewish family was visiting the grave of a loved one when they saw a girl, dressed in a 1920s-era flapper dress, walk toward a mausoleum and then disappear. The family ran to the spot where she'd vanished, but there was no place she could have gone. Even so... She wasn't there and was nowhere to be seen. Around 1980, Deborah Brousseau and four others were sitting on a porch on Lathrop Avenue, just down the street from the Waldheim Cemetery. It was the end of a pleasant summer day, right around dusk. We were trying to figure out what to do that night when this hazy, opaque figure came floating down the sidewalk. The whole image was one color, dimensional but milky gray, not white. Her dress looked strapless, straight cut, 
It had fringes and was one piece, about to the knees. There was something on her head, maybe a hat or a headband. We all saw it. There was just this stunned silence. I got up from the porch and watched it move at a walking pace. It passed over Cermak and went into the cemetery, and then it just sort of evaporated. As the moonlight over Melody Mill waned, though, so too, it seemed, did its ghost. Dale Kaczmarek also shared the story of a man who wished to be known only by the name Jacob, who would frequently visit the graves of family with his parents. As the sun set, they walked back toward their car and saw what he described as something like smoke rising from the ground. He said it gave an impression of humanness, but it wasn't until later that he figured out that he had seen Waldheim's resident ghost. And the last reported sighting took place in 1984. A couple passing the cemetery in early spring of that year both witnessed what they believed was a figure standing near the main gate. It had an ethereal quality to it. Something about it wasn't quite human, but they both said it was definitely the figure of a young, dark-haired woman. It was around this same time that the village of North Riverside purchased the Melody Mill property and other parcels of land neighboring it to use for their village commons. On April 29, 1984, the Melody Mill hosted one last dance. The beer ran out around 10.30 p.m. One of the two bands hired for the night played Auld Lang Syne, and Benjamin Lejkar Sr. thanked the crowd of almost 6,000 people for their years of support. And then, the Melody Mill Ballroom closed its doors forever. Its old billboard is rusting in the public works yard, and the Waldheim flapper hasn't been seen since. The question for us then is, who was she? And the simplest answer is, we don't know. Not with any level of certainty, anyway. And we're not the only ones who have sought a better answer than that. Adam Selzer, a tour guide in Chicago and host of the Mysterious Chicago and Cemetery Mixtapes podcasts, found and wrote about an interesting young woman who he would, for a while at least, link to the Waldheim Flapper legend. Lillian Collier arrived in Chicago sometime around 1920, moving from New York's Greenwich Village. Lillian was young, not yet 20 years old when she arrived, but already fleeing her first marriage to a man named Herbert Collier. Her writing made her popular at Chicago's Dill Pickle Club. That club was known as a speakeasy, a cabaret, and a theater, and was particularly influential as a forum for free thinkers during the Chicago Renaissance. The Dill Pickle's owner, Jack Jones, had been a labor organizer and had founded the club in 1915 to discuss labor issues and social concerns. Tucked away inside an old barn in Tooker Alley, between Delaware and Chestnut off of Dearborn Street, the club eventually incorporated as a non-profit organization for the promotion of the arts, crafts, science, and literature. Its entrance was an orange door lit by a green light, with a sign reading Danger on the wall above it. The door itself read, Step high, stoop low, and leave your dignity outside. Just inside that door was another sign that read, Elevate your mind to a lower level of thinking. The club was popular amongst socialists and anarchists, activists, authors, and political speakers. People like Clarence Darrow, Ben Reitman, Upton Sinclair, and Carl Sandburg are all said to have frequently patronized the club. The club offered an eclectic mix of entertainment, everything from opera to original one-act plays by playwrights like H.L. Mencken and George Bernard Shaw, from poetry reading to drawing classes which featured, as was highly touted on their advertising materials, nude models. Their main room had a stage, brightly painted chairs, counters where drinks and sandwiches were served, and they also had a tea room and an art gallery, two things which would inspire Lillian Collier when she opened up a club of her own. Lillian was idealistic, 
She arrived in Chicago preaching what she referred to as the gospel of real life. Lillian invested in a building at the corner of Ohio and Michigan Avenue where she founded a tea room called the Wind Blue Inn. She was determined to create a bohemian district where people, many of which were impoverished or otherwise lived in society's margins, could create music, art, or literature. She held forums, art exhibits, poetry readings, and jazz concerts. The building had no electric lights inside. Newspaper articles often refer to the building's Stygian darkness, so all of these events were done by candlelight. And the Wind Blue Inn wasn't particularly popular with anyone but their patrons. Neighbors complained about the loud music and the frequent fights that would spill out into the street in front of the building. Parents feared that their children may be attending what was colloquially referred to as petting parties there. Police were convinced that any tea that could be sold for 75 cents a cup must have something more than just tea in it, and to be fair, they were probably right. It was the height of prohibition, after all. The wind blew in was raided by police in February of 1922, and they arrested 40 people. Police Sergeant Charles McGurn described the scene in a way that was no doubt meant to dissuade readers of the Chicago Tribune from ever wanting to visit. We'd received several complaints that things were not as they should be, so we decided to investigate. The place has no electric lights, only candles, and these are scarce in the sole illumination. There were crawling things on the walls, and bandana handkerchiefs serve as tablecloths. When we arrived, we found men and women singing and shouting. Bottles whose contents were peculiarly pre-Volstedian were in evidence, so we pinched the joint. A couple dozen college students, and as the newspapers described them, long-haired men and bob-haired women were charged with disorderly conduct. Lillian Collier and her assistant, Virginia Harrison, appeared in court to answer the charges. Police testified that the candles were merely stumps guttering out on the tables while couples were cuddling amiably in the corners and under the stairs. They said the room was decorated with weird art of the Dill Pickle Club school. A neighbor who ran a boarding house testified that he'd lost renters due to the syncopated blues played on the piano at the Wind Blue Inn at all hours of the night. One of the students testified that he'd gone there because he had heard that people of the genius type went there and he wanted to see what they looked like. Lillian Collier and Virginia Harrison testified that there was nothing stronger than tea and chocolate eclairs being served. And in a statement carried by newspapers around the country, Virginia declared that there is absolutely no snuggle pupping at the Wind Blue Inn. The judge, hoping to cure the girls of their idealism, sentenced them to read a book of fairy tales. A week later, police showed up shortly before midnight and revoked the Wind Blue Inn's license. Lillian argued loudly with the officers before eventually blowing the candles out and closing and locking the front door. Her last words to the police were, Just you wait until I tell Mayor Thompson on you fellows. He'll let me open up again. He's my friend. And she was correct. A week later, a local court issued an injunction restraining the police from being able to invoke the mayor's power to revoke cafe licenses and further specifically prohibited them from interfering in any way with the wind blew in. The next day, a 25-year-old man named Frederick Barnes and two of his friends were ejected from the inn. Whatever the reason, a fight broke out after the ejection which resulted in Barnes being stabbed. Police arrived, but finding the doors closed, were prohibited from entering. About six weeks later, on April 22, 1922, a fire tore through the building. According to police, it was the result of an incendiary device. Lillian declared that she thought that Puritans who were against the establishment of her Bohemian artist colony were responsible. But other articles appeared to suggest that Lillian had a falling out with her former business partner, Virginia Harrison, shortly before the blaze, and that it may have been Virginia who set fire to the Wind Blue Inn. Regardless, though Lillian would reopen the Wind Blue Inn at a new location after the fire, it was never as popular as the original, and soon shut down for good. 
Over the next few years, Lillian would open a number of other establishments, be jailed for larceny, and appear in a nationally published newspaper article one more time, this time defending modern girls from the accusations that flapperism was indecent or immodest, and suggesting instead that they represented a new era of freedom for women. And then she was gone. Not only did she disappear from newspapers, she disappeared from genealogical records. Adam Selzer had determined that her maiden name was Lillian Lieberman. She was born in 1901 in New York, before getting married briefly, taking the last name Collier, and then moving to Chicago. But with the trail having gone cold in the mid-twenties, Selzer suggested, at least in his fictional yet semi-autobiographical book Just Kill Me, that maybe one of Chicago's more infamous women of the early flapper era might have also been tied to the Waldheim ghost story. Now, to be clear, Just Kill Me is intended to be a novel not research. It just happened that these two threads were briefly tied together there. So was she? The short answer is no. Lillian was indeed Jewish and was eventually buried in Chicago, but her story didn't end in the 1920s. Selzer did some great genealogical detective work to trace her story, and I'll take a moment to show how he followed the trail because I think it might give you some insight into the level of work that goes into tracking down the people featured in these stories. Sometime around 1921, Lillian's parents, Meyer and Nellie Lieberman, had divorced. On Meyer's draft card for World War II, he listed a Ms. Lillian Gerard as his closest contact. In 1930, Mrs. Lillian Gerard was living with her husband Franklin in Los Angeles. With them was Lillian's mother, Natalie Bensonson. Bensonson was Nellie Lieberman's maiden name. So it would seem that Lillian had gotten married again and moved to Los Angeles. Her mother, after the divorce, had taken her maiden name back and had moved out there with her. In the 1930s and 40s, Lillian wrote a number of mystery novels, a handful of plays, including one called Weep for the Virgins that was produced on Broadway, and she used the pen named Nellie's Child. And when you say it out loud, that pretty clearly reads as Nellie's Child. Eventually, Lillian would return to Chicago in her later years, and she married a real estate developer named Abner Rosenfeld. When she died on June 11th of 1981 at the age of 79, she'd been living near Loyola University. According to Selzer, she was laid to rest at Shalom Memorial Park. While Lillian Collier certainly was a local legend, she isn't tied, at all, to the Waldheim flapper. Selzer pointed out that the story of the ghost of Melody Mill, way back when it was first told on WGN and gained widespread notoriety, was met with skepticism and was seen as a publicity stunt. It follows the lines of the vanishing hitchhiker legend a little too closely. No one ever took it seriously. And he's right. Except. While the early stories and reports do fit the basic framework of the vanishing hitchhiker legend, those weren't the only stories collected. There's also a story from the family that saw the girl in the unusual 1920s flapper-style dress disappear near a mausoleum in the 1970s. There's Deborah Brousseau's story of seeing the figure walk along the sidewalk before disappearing into the cemetery and vanishing amongst the headstones. And there's Officer John O'Rourke's story of having dropped off a young woman near the cemetery on a rainy night and having her disappear. Even if we write off all of the early stories as a publicity stunt, what do we do with these other stories? Aside from looking at the genealogical detective work Selzer did in tracking down Lillian Collier, there was another reason I wanted to share the history of the Wind Blue Inn in Chicago's Bohemian District. In looking through those old articles about Lillian Collier and the Wind Blue Inn, I came across another young woman whose story may make her a candidate for the woman who had been seen haunting the Waldheim Cemetery. And, like Selzer's early investigation trying to find Lillian Collier, 
this girl seems to have disappeared from all records around the early to mid-1920s. Mary Lieberman, who as near as I can tell was not related to Lillian, was just 17 years old, but already a well-known free verse poetess and artist model in Chicago's Bohemian District when her name first made the newspapers. On Wednesday, March 8th of 1922, Mary Lieberman walked into David Lucchesi's saloon at 2 East Chestnut Street and asked for a glass of water. While waiting for it, she wrote a note on a piece of paper, and when the glass of water arrived, she swallowed more than two dozen bichloride of mercury tablets and lost consciousness. She was taken to Columbus Hospital, where Dr. Thomas Carver told reporters that she might recover. Her suicide note read, Dearest, I wish I could say everything to you now in this note that I always wanted to say. However, nothing seems to matter now except that I love you. Everything else is so futile, meaningless, fruitless, and blank. Everything seems to come to nothingness, and as I go beyond that, I go mad. Please don't say damn fool in that emphatic way of yours. Really, dearest, nothing seems to matter. People and things are horrible and rotten, and while I may sit back and laugh at them, I have had loads of fun, but I'd rather not. My laughter would be too self-conscious. I realize your need for perfect food and perfect happiness. Dear love, I know I didn't have so much to give you, but I did want to give you everything. And when I came to you, I found myself floundering miserably, because I would realize you didn't want anything of me, no matter how much or how little I gave. I might ask you to remember me every time you take the fifth drink but that would be asking too much. I fear, and then, that is such a cheap attempt to add a wonderful touch of burlesque to the tragic story of a young girl who loved not wisely, but too well. But I am lapsing into half-mocking strain of sentimentality. Dearest lover, I have no illusions about you, and am almost the disillusioned person you represent yourself to be. And you said you didn't care at all. Remember me. I love you. Mary. Earlier that year, her diary spoke of a brief affair with an Italian poet named Emmanuel Carnivelli. Carnivelli was an Italian poet who'd immigrated to the United States just before World War I, on his own, at the age of 16. He'd held down jobs in New York, washing dishes, cleaning floors, shoveling snow, and working in grocery stores, while he taught himself English, and then began submitting his poems to every magazine he could find. In 1919, he'd made a name for himself, and was invited to Chicago to become an associate editor of Poetry, a magazine of verse, by Harriet Monroe. He would have been around 25 by the time he met Mary Lieberman. Of him, she wrote in her diary, January 25th, met Emmanuel Carnivelli, the poet. Carnivelli and I walked near the lake. He kissed me. We're to be married. Oh, but poets. Poets. An undated letter from Carnivelli was also tucked into the pages of her diary, reading, Mary, dear, couldn't come because I had no car fare, so help me God. Will you come to me and see me in my room? I know it's an unusual request, but you're an unusual girl. I got some drawings to show you and some poems and some cigarettes, and maybe if I have found some money by that time, some tea and things. I'm waiting you. Good luck to you. Sweet M. A later diary entry would seem to indicate that Mary had gone, January 28th. Went to M's room with him about one in the morning. I'm crazy, he said, because I want you, Mary. I want you. You are so sweet. So sweet. 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 And all the rest. Well, well. This romance would be short-lived, though, as Carnivali returned to Italy a few weeks later after having contracted lethargic encephalitis. Lethargic encephalitis, or encephalitis lethargica, 
is an inflammation of the brain, and its symptoms range from having a high fever and headache to abnormal eye movements and personality changes that include irritability, emotional outbursts, confusion, and psychosis, and may even include coma or death. If you've seen the Robin Williams and Robert De Niro movie Awakenings, that movie was about the efforts to find a treatment for people who had survived the lethargic encephalitis epidemic of 1917-1928. Carnivali would survive, but he would spend the next 20 years in hospitals and various care facilities until his eventual death in 1942. By the time Mary Lieberman attempted suicide in March, she had moved on. Though her letter was said to have been addressed to a C.W. Morse, police captain Morgan Collins told newspapers that instead, the object of her affection was a man named Lionel Moyes. I can imagine that, depending on her handwriting, it could be that the cursive L could have been mistaken for a C, and Moyes could have looked like Morse. Lionel was a 33-year-old man with a wife, two young daughters, and a newborn son. He was employed by an afternoon paper in Chicago, and he denied knowing Mary Lieberman. Mary's mother, Emma, was interviewed at their home, which the paper described as a carpetless three-room apartment in the heart of the ghetto. She tried to convince Mary to leave the art district, but had failed. She was always talking about the Dill Pickle Club, her mother told the papers, and about the poets and the rich folks on the north side. She had left a year ago, and I took her back, but then she left two weeks ago. Thankfully, Mary recovered from her attempted suicide. When she awoke in the hospital, she said, I see the light at last. I see the tinsel and the brass of it all. I am through with Bohemia and its life. I think I shall live. I want to live. A real life. Not that kind of life. She was dismissed from the hospital a week later. Two weeks after her attempted suicide, another young woman from the Bohemian colony, May or Marie Kramer, would also make headlines with a suicide attempt. Like Mary, May took bichloride of mercury tablets. She was a friend of Mary Lieberman's and was also said to have been involved with the same man and was married herself to another man, George, who she'd left behind in Princeton, Indiana. Though letters from her husband pleading with her to return home were found in her room, May's note read, No one cares for me. There is no fellow connected with this. I just got tired of life. But Mary suggested that she and May had been involved with the same man. May did not take poison accidentally. She was involved in a disappointing love affair, just as I was with a man in the art colony. The man was one who paid considerable attention to me, and May was very jealous. May Kramer also recovered. A few months later in July, she would try again in the exact same manner. And in September, I think she may have succeeded. The Chicago Tribune reported that around midnight on Sunday, September 17, 1922, Henry F. Munson found May Kramer unconscious and unresponsive at the corners of State and Chestnut Streets. He rushed her to the hospital where, this time, they gave her little hope of recovery. I can't find a copy of her death certificate, so it's possible that her story doesn't end here. It's possible, and one can hope, that May Kramer recovered a third time, finally got the help that she clearly needed, divorced George, and went on to live a happy life somewhere else. But the following year, she no longer appears as George Kramer's wife in the Princeton City Directory, and two years later, George remarried. Like May Kramer, despite the despair and desperation that life in the Bohemian District had brought to Mary Lieberman's life, and despite her words assuring newspaper readers that she wanted to live a different life, a real life, she too was drawn back in. While her friend May was still in the Columbus Hospital recovering from her first suicide attempt, Mary made her way back to the Wind Blue Inn. There, she got into a brawl with Charlotte Gilchrist, queen of the Chicago artist models, over Miss Gilchrist's morals. 
What right have you to make such remarks? You've never even been inside a studio, Miss Gilchrist is said to have responded, followed by several remarks about Mary's figure. Mary responded in kind, and from there the argument was less words and more punches and fistfuls of hair. The fight spilled outside into the street, and Mary received a black eye and, according to the paper, was last seen running down the street, leaving her hat behind. That would, in fact, be the last time that anyone mentioned Mary Lieberman at all. There are no records of her anywhere after that fight. Mary Lieberman had also used the names Mary Virginia Lester and Mary Lee while living in the Bohemian colony, and along with her affinity for poetry and modeling, had been in a few theater productions within the district. A woman named Mary Lee appeared in a local movie called The Great Idea, which was made to promote home ownership in 1923. But despite her photo revealing a girl of similar appearance to the only known photo of Mary Lieberman, I'm reasonably certain that they're not the same person. Following the trail of genealogical breadcrumbs that the newspaper articles had left, I found that there was a Lieberman family living at, or at least near, the address that the papers gave for the carpetless, three-room apartment in the heart of the ghetto on Frank Street. And that family did indeed have a daughter named Mary. But the newspaper said that the mother's name was Emma. The mother's name in this family was not Emma, and their daughter Mary was about a decade too young to be the Mary Lieberman that's at the center of our story. There was, however, another Lieberman family that fit the details the paper gave a bit better. Morris and Ethel, or Etta, Lieberman, immigrated to the United States from Romania in 1900 with their daughter Dora and their four sons, Harry, Isidore, Louis, and Julius. Mary Lieberman was born in 1903, but was still 18 when she made newspaper headlines in 1922. A younger brother, Oscar, was born a few years later in 1907. Morris Lieberman worked as a fruit peddler. In 1920, the family, Morris, Etta, Julius, Mary, and Oscar, were living together in a small apartment at 1239 South Spalding Avenue. By then, their eldest brother, Harry Lieberman, had also found work as a peddler, but he passed away at the age of 23 in May of 1911. He was buried at Waldheim Cemetery. Their eldest sister, Dora Lieberman, had married Adolf Marcus. She had two sons and then died in September of 1915, less than a week after her 30th birthday. She, too, was buried at Waldheim Cemetery. By 1930, the patriarch of the family, Morris Lieberman, had passed away, leaving Etta a widow. Census records show that she was living in 1930 with her son Louis and his family before passing away herself in 1943. When she died, Etta Lieberman was also buried at Waldheim Cemetery. Though there are several Lewis Liebermans buried at Waldheim, we can't say for sure which of them was Mary's brother, because we don't have his death certificate. What we do know is that Lewis's wife, Mary's sister-in-law, Etha Schulman Lieberman, was also buried at Waldheim in the Liebovitcher section, Gate 56, when she passed on in 1958. So do we think that Mary Lieberman is the Waldheim flapper? Well, the simple answer is still, we don't know. By 1930, Mary Lieberman is gone from all historical records. We don't know that that means that she died. It could be that like her friend May Kramer, she may have succeeded in taking her own life. But it could also mean that, like Lillian Collier, she simply got married and moved away. What we do know is that Mary Lieberman was a free-spirited, independent, young Jewish woman known around Chicago and specifically Chicago's Bohemian Artist District in the early 1920s and that in those social circles, flapper dresses were certainly the style. 
We do know that she disappears entirely from the genealogical records after the 1920 census, and from newspapers after her suicide attempt and fight in March of 1922. We also know that she had strong family connections to the Waldheim Cemetery. Though we don't have official records to show where her father was buried, or even what year he died, we suspect that he was also buried at Waldheim in 1929. And then we know that her other family members, her mother, sister, brother, likely at least one other brother, and her sister-in-law were all buried at Waldheim. So it seemed to make sense that if she died sometime in the 1920s, she would have been laid to rest there too. We don't have enough evidence to say with any certainty that if the reports of people having seen the ghost of a young, dark-haired woman in a 1920s-era flapper-style dress in and around the Waldheim Cemetery were true, that it would have had to have been the ghost of Mary Lieberman. But it is enough for us to say that maybe it could have been. The Roaring Twenties were an era of hope, prosperity, and cultural change in the United States. And one of the most enduring images of that era is the flapper, a young woman with short bobbed hair and a straight-waisted knee-length dress. She was the heroine of Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and on the silver screen, she was portrayed by actresses like Clara Bow, Colleen Moore, Louise Brooks, and Gloria Swanson. Their appeal and their mystique came not only from their independence, but from their rejection of Victorian social norms and their libertine sexual mores. Flappers became both synonymous and emblematic of the progressive ideology of that decade, and in some ways, with its other ties to the Roaring Twenties, the Art Deco architecture, its jazz ballrooms, speakeasies, and their notorious gangland wars, it's somewhat appropriate that one of Chicago's more famous ghosts was that of a young woman who embodied all that was the 1920s. And if we have found the identity of the Waldheim Flapper, if she was indeed the ghost of Mary Lieberman, I think it's ironic that she shares the name of another infamous Chicago ghost, Resurrection Mary. But, as I said at the outset, We'll come back to that. You have been listening to episode six, The Waldheim Flapper. If you enjoy Epitaph, please take time to rate and review us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Want a place to connect with us or discuss episodes of others? Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at, at EpitaphPod. If you've got a few extra dollars, please consider joining our Patreon. There, you'll get access to Epitaph The Others, our special subscriber-only bonus show and other exclusive content. Epitaph is an independent bi-weekly podcast. This episode was researched, written, hosted, and produced by Epitaph Podcast. The content of this podcast is copyright Epitaph Incorporated 2019, all rights reserved.